0: John 5, verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. And this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Now that we're five chapters into John's gospel, we're probably used to seeing people get Jesus all wrong, at least to start. Mary, Nicodemus, the woman at the well, the king's official, all their interactions with Jesus start with mistaken assumptions and wrongly ordered priorities. So far, John has been using these interactions to highlight Jesus's mission And his power. His mission is to do the will of his Father, the one who sent him. And his power is absolute. He has complete control over the physical universe. The interaction in this morning's passage checks all those boxes as well. The invalid profoundly misunderstands Jesus' mission and power, and the miracle that Jesus performs healing him. Highlights both. But from the details of the narrative focus of this particular interaction, we can tell that John's reason for including it is something else. His focus isn't really on the invalid man, nor even directly is his focus on Jesus. The focus is on these religious rulers, Here, writes one pastor, John is introducing the winds of hostility that are starting to blow from the hierarchy of the Jewish establishment. Nearly everyone Jesus encounters misses the most important things. They misunderstand what he's saying, and so they misunderstand what he's offering. Most people have got Jesus all wrong. But what's unique about this passage is that at least in this one sense... It's the religious rulers who have Jesus all right. That is, at least they're the ones who understand just who Jesus is claiming to be. Verse 1 tells us that Jesus has gone to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish feasts. And while there, he has this interaction at a pool just outside an entrance to the city called the Sheep Gate. Now, incidentally, we know today where this gate was. In 1888, when St. Anne's Church in Jerusalem was being uh, significantly repaired, the location of the pool was discovered. And they know it was this pool because they also discovered a fresco on the wall of the church depicting what your Bibles probably have in a footnote to explain the missing verse for. The best manuscripts don't have that verse. It was added most likely by a later editor and not written by John. And the editor appears to have been concerned that a later reader might read this story and not understand at all while all these lame and invalid people were gathered around this pool. And there was a rumor in that day in Jerusalem, a rumor that we have no reason to believe was true, that occasionally an angel would come and would stir the waters of the pool, causing the waters to bubble and foam. And the, the rumor was that the first person to enter the pool when that happened would be cured of whatever affliction they had. And that's why it mattered so much to get into the water quickly. When this happened, and you never knew when it would be, it was only the first person who was healed. Now, Jesus is a lot less random than that. He looks across this group of gathered people, these needy people, and for reasons known only to God, he singles out this man. Verse 5 tells us that he's been 38 years in this condition, unable to move freely and take care of himself. And the text tells us that Jesus knows that he's been coming to this pool, he's been at this pool for a long time. So on one level... Jesus' question seems absurd. Do you want to be healed? Doesn't everyone who needs healing want healing? Well, actually, no. Some people find their identity in their brokenness, they don't know who they would be without it. Others, while saying they want to be healed, aren't interested in doing what it takes for that to happen. Just ask any physical therapist. What's more, people reject relational healing all the time. They refuse to forgive, sometimes refuse to be forgiven. They hold grudges, they keep records of wrong, they cling tightly to their guilt and shame, and they make mental lists of those who've offended them. People commonly reject spiritual healing. They try to fill the emptiness of soul common to all of us before Christ with things that can never satisfy. They'll exhaust themselves doing good works or exhaust their wallets by giving to others. But what they won't do is submit their lives to the one who can actually heal a human soul. Do you want to be healed is really a profound question. It's intended, as one scholar writes, to bring the man to openly acknowledge his deep misery and his inability to deliver himself from it. Now, the man at the pool, he thinks the question is absurd. (laughs) Do you want to be healed? And you might be inclined to read his response in verse 7 with some sympathy, but you've got to know this is not a polite response at all. He's grumbling. One of my commentaries called him a crotchety old man. He is grumbling that in this every man for himself pool, he's never gotten the chance to be the first one in. He's grumbling because he can't get to the water first. He can't be healed. He's grumbling that there's no one to help him be healed. And he grumbles all of this, even as Jesus is standing right in front of him, offering to heal him. He grumbles. Because he has no faith in Christ. He has no faith that God will heal him. He actually has no faith that he even can be healed any other way than the bizarre supposed miracle of this pool. And the practical result, if you read his words, think about this. The man now cares more about being put into the pool than he cares about being healed. And that would be really easy to criticize. If it weren't something we do ourselves, how many times, having determined what it would take for me to be safe or happy or blessed or healthy or prosperous, how many times have I fixated on the means God should provide rather than the outcome? One of the reformers observed that this diseased man did what almost all of us do he limits the assistance of God according to the limits of his imagination. How many times, having determined what has to happen in our lives, do we reject every other possibility with dissatisfaction? How many times do we live as though we and not God offers what's best for us? Now, Jesus passes right over the old man's grumblings. Verse 8, Jesus said to him, get up, take your bed and walk. At once, the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. No, the man wasn't healed because some angel came down and stirred up the pool. He wasn't healed because an underground spring, the most likely scenario, occasionally fed this pool fresh water, causing the bubbling. He was healed because of the power of Jesus. John's term in verse 9 is at once. He was healed at once. That's a term Mark uses a lot. If you know Mark's gospel, it's often uh, translated immediately. It's actually pretty rare in John's gospel. But he uses it here to stress how instantly the man was healed. No complex process or repetitive action, even as Jesus uses in other of his healings. There's no emphasis on any indirect means. It's just that Jesus simply made the man well, and he was well. But that part of the story, as I said at the beginning, is not John's focus. It's the setting, the set up for what comes next. Because as the end of verse 9 makes clear, Jesus had performed this particular healing on the Sabbath. And for some, that was a real problem. A biblical view of the Sabbath should begin with, well, the Bible. Exodus 20, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you will labor and do all your work, but the seventh is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh. Therefore the Lord blessed The Sabbath day and made it holy. Now, over the years, out of regard for this commandment, Jewish teachers had added additional commentary, additional advice, in an effort to help the people keep the Sabbath commandment. And by the time of the Pharisees, this has gotten so out of hand that Jewish tradition had identified 39 different types of work that were illegal on the Sabbath. And one of those types was carrying something from one place to another. Not allowed. This is why in verse 10, the Jews accused the man of breaking the Sabbath. When he picked up his bed, a small, thin mat, and walked away, he broke their rules for keeping the Sabbath holy. And lost... In their analysis was the absence of that particular rule from the Exodus 20 passage I just read. But even more lost in their analysis was the joy of this man's healing. 38 years of suffering, relieved in an instant. And they don't care. Lost in their analysis was the power of the one who healed him. Who wields such power as to say, take up your bed and walk, and an invalid can do it? No, all they could see was a man not doing what they had told him to do. You know what makes this really ironic? (laughs) In the rabbinical code about Sabbath, there's an exception that you're allowed to carry the lame on the Sabbath as an act of mercy. So if Jesus had picked up the man from the pool and paraded him around town on his shoulder, that would have been fine. But saying to the man, rise and walk so that the man could do it himself, totally unacceptable. The fourth commandment is still today one that is greatly misapplied in God's church. There are some who still, like the Pharisees, use the Lord's Day to pile heavy loads on people's backs. And there are even more Christians who have no regard for the commandment whatsoever. They've confused church attendance with Sabbath keeping and are completely convinced that by doing one, they've satisfied the other. I love how one author describes the Sabbath. He says, it's a day set specifically aside for works of gratitude for the salvation of God has given. That's what worship is. It's a work of gratitude for the salvation God has given. That's what fellowship among believers is. It's gratitude for the salvation God has given acts of mercy and service. We don't just do them to make ourselves feel better on the Lord's day. We do them out of gratitude for the salvation that God has given. And so this is how he describes, I love this, the counter predictable result of that. He says, for the Pharisees, the Sabbath meant idleness, but for Christ, it meant work. Nonetheless, for the Pharisees, their idleness constituted hardship. And for Christ, this work was rest. Now they press the man to tell him who healed him. They want him to roll over on his confederate in this crime, but he doesn't know. He would have told them if he had known. He's clearly eager to please them, but he doesn't know the name of the man that he's blamed for his Sabbath breaking. And then sometime later, Jesus and this healed man cross paths in the temple. Not by accident, of course. Verse 14 says, Jesus found him. Like all encounters, it's providential. There are no accidents, only divine appointments. And so what he says in that context to the man is a bit startling. It's another one of these, Jesus seems really mean sometimes moments. See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. I should admit there are two schools of thought about the man. Some, believing that Jesus healed his body and saved his soul, understand this verse as Jesus' way of telling him to walk with God because the consequences of spiritual death are even worse than what he had suffered physically before. That's possible, but I side with the scholars who do not believe that this man was given saving faith mostly because there's just no evidence of that. He grumbles at Jesus prior to his healing. He allows him to slip away unidentified after he's miraculously healed. When the Pharisees accuse him of Sabbath breaking, he blames the one who healed him for telling him to do it. And then here, as soon as he learns who Jesus is, he runs right back to the Jews to tell them, that's the man you should be looking for, him, not me. I don't see any evidence of faith. And if he's still unconverted at this point in the story, what we have in Jesus's admonition is a bit of insight into the man's hard heart. All those years, sitting at the pool, wishing for an angel to come make him well. All those years, he at no time considered that his own sin might be a factor in his condition. I hear this very clearly. Everyone listen to what I'm about to say. When you are counseling others, when you are talking to family, friend, brother or sister in Christ, we never assume, as Job's friend did, that personal sin is at the root of their difficult circumstances. We do not accuse others of sin because some consequence in their life seems bad. That's not our job. But the Bible is very clear that there can be a connection between those two. And that self-examination, looking at that within our own lives, is an important part of dealing with hardship. We have to ask the Lord to show us our sin. In Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira are struck dead because of dishonesty. In John's first epistle, he tells us that there are sins that lead to death. Paul tells the Corinthians that their abuse of the Lord's Supper is why some have become sick and why others have already died. And Jesus shows us that this man, in his hardness of heart, ignored the obligation of self-examination. He went straight from his circumstances to the victim mentality and then to the hopelessness of his own cause. Think about this, because this should be stunning. Of course, it didn't surprise Jesus at all. Even when the man was healed, it had no effect on his spiritual life. Think of how many in history have said, if God would only do this, if he would only show himself in this way, I would believe in him. If anyone had cause to believe it was this man, and he doesn't. Think of how many times we in our hearts have said to God, if God would only do this, if God would only give us this, I would would follow him more. I would be more obedient. I would be more zealous for Christ. No, we won't. No, we won't. This man could walk, but he still has Jesus all wrong. Miracles, miracles alone cannot give people real faith. So he goes back to the Jews and he tells them that Jesus is the Sabbath breaker they're seeking. And scripture says that on this basis, the persecution of Jesus begins in earnest. His answer, verse 17, my Father is working until now, and I am working. And on this point, we have to give the Jewish leaders credit. They got Sabbath all wrong. They got their own need for salvation wrong. They got what mattered about the man's healing wrong. But when Jesus said this, they got Jesus all right. They knew exactly what he meant. Remember that in Exodus 20, God patterned our work and Sabbath keeping after his work. And though God rests at the end of creation, even in that rest, he continues to maintain the universe through providence. He extends grace and help to his people, and he glorifies himself. And even men, like these religious rulers, knew that these works of God were not prohibited by the fourth commandment. God didn't do anything wrong by maintaining providence, by giving his people grace in a time of need, and by glorifying himself. And these are the works of God that Jesus claims to be doing when he told the man to pick up his mat and walk. The father and son are doing the same work. And these men know that the father is not breaking the Sabbath. And Jesus says, that's why he never is either. It is a profoundly theological claim. It offers an answer to the most important question in the gospels. Who is Jesus really? Kids, this is a question that you all will have to answer for yourselves. Because in the end, it won't matter for you what my answer to the question was or your parents' answer. What will determine the trajectory of your life and your hope for the next is your answer to that question. And you're going to meet a lot of people who want to tell you who Jesus is. They'll say that Jesus was a good moral teacher. Or a social justice warrior, or a political disruptor. But they will also quickly say he was not God. In fact, many of them claim that Jesus never said he was God, that that's just something the church added later to make the church seem more important. But these Jewish officials standing in front of Jesus, the ones who heard him with their own ears, they disagree. Here's what one scholar writes. When the Jewish authorities heard Jesus call God my own father, they did not do what many moderns have done. They did not try to tone down the character of Jesus' claim. They immediately understood that he was claiming for himself deity in the highest possible sense of the term. And so that claim is either the most wicked blasphemy to be punished by death or the most glorious truth to be accepted by faith. Some of you guys have read the Chronicles of Narnia. That author, C.S. Lewis, said that given the things that Jesus said about himself, there are only three options. Jesus is either a liar who claims he's God and is not, he's a lunatic who thinks he's God and is not, or he is God, as he says. What Jesus can't be is kind of important. He can't be merely a good example. Because in this morning's passage, and in many others, he claims to be God. And kids, every one of you, and adults, every one of us, all have to decide for ourselves which of these three options we believe. The Jewish leaders understood. They got Jesus all right here. But his claim enraged them. And it's because he was not one of them. Because he was not one of them, they refused to believe that he could be the Messiah. Whether he was a liar or a lunatic, they don't know. They don't care. If he isn't God and he says he is God, then he's a blasphemer. Put him to death. In verse 18, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. How we respond to hardship and blessing and just day-to-day life, how we respond to all of this really reveals what we believe about Jesus and the answer to that question. This morning's text is filled with people who have the wrong response to Jesus because they have the wrong understanding of who he is. The right response to the healing Jesus provides, a blessing and a miracle, 38 years in bondage and now free. The right response to this is praise and gratitude. But do you notice the man in this story utters not one word of those? He thinks that what he needed was healing. But what he really needed was to know the healer. The Jewish authorities learn about this man's blessing and they have not one word of praise or gratitude toward God. They claim to be concerned about holiness. But they care nothing about the Holy One of Israel who's standing right before them. They care nothing for God's people. This man who had been freed from 38 years of affliction. What good is it to care about worship? If we care nothing about those we worship with and nothing about the one we're supposed to be worshiping, what good is it to care about worship if we care nothing about those we worship with and nothing about the God we're supposed to be worshiping? There are many great causes for praise in this passage. If you go back through it this afternoon, I think you could find them and make a longer list than even I did. It's that way in our lives every day, isn't it? If we'd sit back at the end of the day and reflect, nearly no matter what happened, we could make a list of praiseworthy items longer than we anticipated. In this story, less obvious than the man's healing is this God is with them. Emmanuel. God is with us. Jesus comes to them. Jesus calls out the man. And yet the man feels no loyalty whatsoever. And the authorities want Jesus dead. Christians, the spirit of Christ comes to his people, comes to you even today, even now in worship. How do we to respond? And what does that response show that we believe about Christ. Brothers and sisters, rejoice that God is with us. Praise him for his healing power in our lives. Join in the work that he and the Father are doing. Commit your Sabbath day to their purposes. Trust his sovereignty and providence, knowing that there's no safer place for us to be than in his will. And unlike the invalid man, practice godly self-examination. Consider ways where the Lord may be disciplining us in his love, correcting us so that we learn more and grow more in his holy way. So that when the question is asked, and it's asked in one way or another every day, who is Jesus really? In our lives, it will be clear that he is Lord.